everyone. My name's Michael Kaiser. And I'm John Wilson. And welcome to another episode of Make Ours Marvel. This is episode 104 of the podcast that people are calling the longest podcast about Silver Age Marvel ever created by guys named Michael and John. Who is calling it that? That's I, really fun. Right? That's a good subtitle for our show. Yes. We might actually be the longest podcast ever about Silver Age Marvel. You think? Could be. I, I know there have been other podcasts because I think we looked up the competition at one point. Yep. Uh, My Marvelous Year is out there doing good stuff. They they pull out highlight issues from each year to look at going through the years. Mm. Um, and there's definitely podcasts that focus on a particular character or team mm-hmm. that have probably got past us. Yeah, but I don't know. Uh, Spide- I don't know about people doing everything. The Spidey Rewind Boys, um, Fantastic the Cast, Swinging Through Spider Man, Fantastic Cast. Although they've they have closed shop. Yeah, but they they, they did, did every us. issue. Yeah, past us. Yeah, but um, I'd say I'd say explain the X Men, but they kind of just do story arcs or something. And okay. they totally skadooshed over the Silver Age, <laughs> which is not fair. Yeah, we have to focus on it as we are going to tonight. By the way, oh, that's right. right. It's X Men night. For all you X-Men fans out there, we're going to be covering some stinking muty tales. And it really is stinking muty time, too, huh? Yeah. Well, we are in September of 1965. September 2nd, which means my wife is going to be born in, do the math, 15 years and one day. Oh, she is younger than me. Yes, she's younger than I am, and I'm younger than you are. Mm-hmm. Not by much, but just Not a little bit. Much. All right. Uh, this is issue 74. If I didn't say so, tell us to astonish. We're starting with the uh, Namor story because it's, you know, first. And it's titled When Fails the Quest, which is uh, not too promising because we've been questing for a while now. We don't want that to fail. Yeah. While Warlord Krang desperately fights to save his throne, the throne he has, you know, stolen from Namor. The true Prince of Atlantis abandons his quest for Neptune's trident and streaks toward the helpless Lady Dorma, who is a captive of the dreaded Faceless Ones. Um, okay. So he goes to the cave where Dorma is being harassed by the Faceless Ones. She was in, like, a science tube of science, but now she just appears to be wrapped in, like, saran wrap. And they're trying to get to her, so he starts punching (gasps) them. Did you, um, do the credits? Nope. You know, who needs credits? Devastating yeah. Drama by Stanley, Shattering Spectacle by Adam Austin, Explosive Embellishment by Vince Coletta, Cataclysmic Calligraphy, well, I like wow. that, by yeah. Sam Rosen. Okay, Saran Wrap Dorma, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> then, um, <laughs> the, That's a cool toy idea. There is a whole squad of rebelling Atlanteans who are coming up against Krang, um, he is using his master controls to try to fight them off. He has a TV screen that he puts over all of Atlantis. I am Krang. Stop trying to fight me. I'm super cool. Don't you remember? And if you fight me, I will kill you. Uh, everyone's like, oh, why doesn't Namor come back? He could fight that guy. An old dude from like an issue or two ago, maybe just last issue, is like, I remember Namor. He's on his journey to the forbidden depths. He was so hot. And they're like, oh, yeah. So if Namor's alive, he's going to come back and save us. Yes, I remember his abs. Meanwhile, back in the palace, <laughs> Royal um, Krang gets a robo tank 
and programs the robot driving the robo-tank to go shoot some civilians. So it does. And meanwhile, old guy hops a seahorse <laughs> and gallops <laughs> off into the ocean to find Namor. Um, uh-huh. Krang is gloating over all the dead bodies. Um, Namor is having a really hard time against all the faceless ones. There are a lot of faceless ones, but Dorma is still safe in her plastic cage, is what they're calling the whole saran wrap thing. Um, uh, old guy comes in with his seahorse, and, uh, oh, but then the seahorse jumps out from underneath him, bucks him off, and he starts falling into a cave. Um, I think he falls right into the cave where Namor is. Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't I think show- he's supposed well, supposed to be. I don't think it happens. Yeah, it doesn't show him actually fall in where Namor is, but Namor finally beats the Faceless Ones enough to get to Dorma. But Dorma has also been beaten down, so Namor picks her up like Supergirl on the cover of that one issue of Crisis on Infinite Earths. And he's like, I'm going to kill the rest of the world if they've hurt my Dorma. Next issue, the end of the quest, Imperious Rex. Wow. This was... So- this, Interesting. This is the issue where William Hartnell like couldn't make it, so all of his scenes were filmed in advance because they weren't really part of the story. Because <laughs> Namor is just fighting faceless ones the entire time. Yeah, and like the big crux of the story is not really him at all. Mm-hmm. He's just a bookend kind of. He's fighting before and he's fighting at the end, he, and he's not doing his quest anymore. So it's like, hmm. yeah, he abandoned his quest, which I kind of wonder if the quest was really just friends we made along the way. Um, I feel like the quest was something where they go, wow, this is getting repetitive really fast, and I can't think of any more weird stuff. Those glowing diamonds were already pretty low. I kind of feel the, like on the ideas list, abandoning it to go rescue the woman he loves mm-hmm. should get rewarded by Neptune. Neptune's like, yes. oh, you get the trident because you found hey. the real reason for the quest. You know what? If that doesn't happen, I'm going to be disappointed now because that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. And it is, you know, on the one hand, the logic in me is like, no, he really needs to care more about everybody, not just Dorma who betrayed him. But on the other hand, it is very romantic, and that's very Namor because he's a passionate dude. Um, so I like that he went back to rescue. Well, maybe that's how the quest failed, though, because he actually went to go save Dorma, and he lost her at the end. I kind of feel like the quest is, I kind of feel like the quest is a moot point because the quest. Okay, so here's what I'm thinking about the entire time I'm reading this mm-hmm. and the last issue. Like, okay, Namor went off to get arrested in Daredevil. And while that happened, Krang took over somehow. And you would think that would mean the people cooperated with that. Cause how else do you take over? Right. Or at least a bunch of people, or at least enough military cooperated that the rest of the people had to toe the line. Right. Right. I don't know how big Asgard is. Is it as big as planet earth? Is it 10 people? I don't know. But now they're all rebelling against him, and he's holed up in this little chamber of his, just him. And yet still somehow he's the ruler? Like, can't they just ignore him and go about their lives now? Except he has a robot car, so that sucks. Well, I think- but, like, is he king still anyway? And can't Namor just come back and beat him up and everybody be like, hooray, now you're king, who cares about the trident? Well, if you're a king in your castle, and your castle is surrounded by unhappy populace... Mm-hmm. Like, what are you going to do? Right. I mean, that's French Revolution, right? They just decided, right. you know what? You're not the king and queen anymore. You're dead now. Uh-huh. And he doesn't have an army supporting him or anything. It doesn't right. seem like. He's he's just a dude in a box on TV. Mm-hmm. So I feel like Namor doesn't really need the trident. He could just show up and rip that thing open and beat 
Krang to death, and then everybody would be like, yay, you're king again. At this point, yeah, he definitely could. Yeah, yeah. Things I learned from this issue. Okay. Computers, especially Robotanks, <laughs> respond better if you tell them to clear their memory banks first. That is... Boy, that does not really gel with Asgard. Or Asgard. Atlantis. With, uh, Atlantis. Did I say Asgard earlier? Yeah, did. you did. I just let it go. <laughs> Atlantis. It's kind of the same idea. Atlantis, Asgard. Whatever. Crazy places we've never been. One's above, one's below. I don't know about the whole robot powering a robot tank thing. That didn't seem scream uh, Atlantean design somehow. Yeah. It was weird. And it's a ground tank, so it's like rolling along the sea floor. <laughs> That's a good point. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. It doesn't even have propellers to like float around like a submarine or something. Nope. That is weird. Yep. Also, seahorses are telepathic. Yes, and giant. Although... It is funny. I also laughed. But at the same time, I was like, all right, that at least kind of works. We have horses on land. What would you use under the sea? Seahorses. Sure. I guess. Well, the seahorse is using thought impulses from all the other fish to find out where Namor was last seen so he can go there. Mm -hmm. I guess Atlantean and fishy things are all telepathic, which we are learning from this uh, Tales to Astonish title. And the other thing I learned from this issue is what I said earlier. It takes a really long time to fight faceless ones. Yeah, I guess they're not, like, challenged to fight other than their numbers. Because they just never stop coming. They don't stop coming, and 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 they don't stop coming. Don't stop coming don't... Yeah. Um, but even the, they're even their design, like, the faceless ones. Oh, no, the faceless ones. And then you finally see the faceless ones, and they're not all that exciting. And they actually like, do have faces, so there's that. Do they? I don't know. I feel like I saw facial features on them. Maybe not. They're just green blobs with pointy ears oh, you're right. like we, little frog guys. We amazingly don't see their faces. Yeah, you're right. Okay, even though there's no real similarity or connection, I feel like we can't just let this go by the fact that there's a Doctor Who story called The Faceless Ones. Oh, is there? Yeah, it's a second Doctor story, so it's actually in the future of this issue because second Doctor starts next year. Um, hmm. But yeah, there is a story called The yet. Faceless Ones. It takes place in an airport and it actually oh. leads into the evil of the Daleks. Okay, I haven't got that far. I'm still stuck on the second Doctor, but I guess I haven't got that far. I don't remember an airport. Uh, yeah, it was cool. Actually, this is probably more exciting than it has been because like the the whole new quest every story was getting old real fast. Mm-hmm. This was more exciting. Stories moving forward. Stories moving forward. Speaking of kind of exciting, but not really. The Wisdom of the Watcher. So much happened last issue. This is a tough one to explain. Because it was bonkers. That is what they mean, right? The evil leader has sent old green skin to the home planet of the Watcher. By Not the moon, by the way, his home planet. By yes. means of thought, pattern, and projection. Or sure. as Goku thought, calls it, instant matter transmission. Mm-hmm. That actually sounds better. Yeah. Purpose? To bring back the Watcher's greatest scientific treasure. But another creature from another world has the same objective at the same time. And so the Incredible Hulk finds himself battling the most powerful fighter in the known galaxy. I know we're supposed to do a summary right now, and we can get to that. But like, just commenting more on the last story that we voted, we both voted unanimously was the worst story of the month. Mm -hmm. Like, they don't establish how the leader knows this red dude wants the same thing. And we never get established why the leader even knows what the glowy ball thing is and how it's the most precious thing in this arsenal of things that nobody understands. Did right? the leader know this creature was going to be here? How did he know that? 
Well, actually, the Hulk says that right up front. This is why the leader sent me. He knew only my strength <laughs> would have a chance against his scaly skin powerhouse. Ugh. Anyway. Well, that requires so some pretty st- specific timing, doesn't it? It's already it's already annoying me, and we just started. Dreamed up by Stan Lee, designed by Jack Kirby, drawn by Bob Powell, delineated by Mickey DeMeo. DeMeo the delineator? Wow. Doodled by S. Rosen. Okay. So Hulk and Red Guy fight, and they bicker, and they bicker, they fight, and they fight, 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 bicker, 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 and they fight all they want, and then turn the page, turn lots <laughs> of pages, and then the Watcher's like, okay, fight's over. You can take anything you want from my room, and Hulk is like, ooh, yellow ball. And Leader says, I can see through your eyes. Yes, that's it. Take the yellow ball. And Hulk's like, Hulk, take yellow ball. And Watch says, my ultimate machine, the most powerful, most dangerous device of all. So Hulk takes it, and Leader's like, mine! So he looks at it. It is the uh, has all the knowledge of the known universe recorded. This is the internet in my hands. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put my head inside <laughs> the internet. Up the butt of the internet. So yep. he does, and he dies. Yep. And that's the end. Leader is dead. Part. It's all over. All right, so this was better than last time. Because it ended just it? because, one, it ended it. Two, I do kind of like the fight, especially how Hulk wins. That was pretty cool. I, I don't like that we just don't know who this red guy is, and we never will. Mm-hmm. Most powerful uh, creature in the universe. Most powerful creature in the universe, somehow amphibious, even though he looks volcanic. Mm-hmm. So it's a weird design. Once again, the Watcher interferes like five times by not interfering. He interferes. Mm-hmm. You know, I can't interfere, so I'm going to teleport them somewhere else to fight. Right. And then I'm going to teleport them back, and then I'm going to teleport them home. But and I do the, like that. Oh, go ahead. Well, the Watcher like thinks that to himself over and over again. So it's like, is it a reminder I can't interfere, or is he like telling himself, no, 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 no. you can't interfere. You can't do it. Don't do it, Watcher. Don't. But maybe, maybe as an alien, their definition of interfere is different than ours. Or he's rationalizing, because I really feel like he's just, like, rationalizes why he can interfere. He's totally rationalizing. But I do like that they jam the Hulk into this rock wedge, and then he leaves him, and he says, I win! And there's this big monsoon, and the Hulk comes out of the ground, and he says, no, you don't, tosses him into space. That was pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, and the leader dying was pretty cool, I gotta say. I liked that. I think the idea that there are people out there who want to raid the Watcher's home world... Is an interesting mm-hmm. idea. Yeah. And why not if you got all this weird tech there? Right. And the Watchers are like the super advanced godlike. I really feel like the Watchers are the um, the Organians. Uh-huh. From Star Trek. But I do you feel like that's a good Hulk plot? No. <laughs> Wouldn't this be better if the Fantastic Four was fighting somebody trying to raid the Watchers arsenal or something? I don't yes. know. Yes. Yes. That seems like an appropriate Fantastic Four plot. Yeah. Yeah, but the Hulk keeps doing that. Like, right out of the gate in his first issue, he's a communist fighter in, in a rocket ship. You know, like, they keep doing weird stuff with the Hulk, where the Hulk should just be more like, you know, a pro wrestler. I well, don't know. I'm very curious to see where this goes next issue, because this finally brings a solid end to a storyline that's been going basically since issue 60, whenever the series started. Yeah, Which is the 72, so that's a year. I, I didn't see it coming because I know the leader's uh, spoilers, kids. He's not really dead, obviously. So I didn't see it coming that that's how they were going to wrap this up. Although he is gone for like 40 issues. I looked up. Yeah. Okay. So now Bruce Banner is in charge of the Hulk's brain. I call shenanigans on that. I think that's not true anymore. Yeah. My first note on this was, remember how the Hulk had Banner's brain? 
I was thinking that, and then I'm like, did they just decide to not do that? But then on page three, he does talk about it or think about it to himself. Even though I have the brain of Bruce Banner, once again, I find myself thinking like the Hulk. Well, if you're thinking like the Hulk, are you Bruce Banner? But then again, if you're thinking like you're Bruce Banner thinking like the Hulk, are you Bruce Banner or are you the Hulk? I, I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't wrap my brain around that. I feel like this has happened every time he becomes you know, Bruce Banner as the Hulk. He mm-hmm. deteriorates. Yes. And I feel like it's an unspoken but consistent story point. Just because mm-hmm. he has the brain of Bruce Banner when he transforms doesn't mean he's going to keep it. He's going yes. to deteriorate to Hulk-level intelligence. Because he starts using the word ain't, and I don't feel like Bruce Banner says ain't. Right. And he does a lot in this story. So, yeah, he basically just sounds like the Hulk to me. So that's that. Leader's dead. Leader's dead. It was cool. Like, that seems like a plot device, though. Like, you know, the bad guy wants all the knowledge, and then he gets all the knowledge, and it sucks, and he dies. I feel like I've read that somewhere before, or seen that somewhere before. And I wonder if the Watcher calls all of his stuff the ultimate whatever. Yeah, that he never actually invents. This is the ultimate weapon. This is my ultimate nullifier. This is my ultimate Marvel comics. But I guess it's cool to know what a Watcher's... um, compact disc looks like i guess i mean what do they what do they do with all the watcher knowledge they must put it on this little golden doohickey yeah yeah all right should we move on to probably a better story probably a better story x-men number 14 among us stock the sentinels a fabulous fantasy fathered by your fearless marvel madmen stan lee ds doctor of story jack kirby dl dean of layout jay gavin ma master of art V. Coletta, B.I., Bachelor of Inking. John Artie Wilson, Semek. B.M., Bowel Movement. Artie Semek, T.O.L., Tired of Lettering. So if you remember, <laughs> last issue, they fought the Juggernaut and won, but they wanted a price. They're all beat up pretty bad, except for Jean Grey because they didn't let her do anything. But Cyclops has this tank on his head. He's trying to like get his beams back, and Beast has is on crutches because his foot has an owie. And they have Angel all strapped up in this harness so that he can get he could just flap around stationary and get like the strength in his wings backs. And they have Iceman in an ice bath getting him colder. Anyway, after all that, everybody gets better. Um, and then Thor and then Thor. And then Professor X says, I think you guys deserve a vacation. And they all say, Yay! It's actually kind of cute how they're all smiling and stuff. Anyway, we cut to this dude named Trask. Dun, dun, dun. And he's an anthropologist, because that's going to make sense later. And he thinks we're so busy worrying about the Cold War, the hot war, the atomic bomb. Nobody's paying attention to mutants. Do you understand how dangerous they are? And everybody's like, really? Are they? Oh, I didn't know that. So then they, the Daily Globe prints mutant menace, like, you know, 200 million times. So that's not going to be good for them. Anyway, we cut to the team. Like prepping to go home. Vacation apparently meant going home, not going to Disneyland. So Warren is having Bobby tie his straps down. We learn that Warren has never revealed to his parents that he is a mutant because he developed his wings in college and has was able to hide them. Um, Bobby suggests that maybe you shouldn't have to hide. And Warren's like, yeah, you're just a kid. You don't understand. Cyclops laments about how he has to constantly have his eyes closed or have his helmet on. Or in this case, now they develop some sunglasses for him. Beast can somehow tape his size 28 feet with tape. And that somehow matters. So he does that. Um, And Jean Grey looks like Jean Grey. So Jean and Warren have to take a train home. 
And Cyclops is all dressed up, and he's just about to ask Jean if she wants a ride to the train when Warren swoops in, metaphorically, not physically, and says, hey, do you want a ride to the train? And she says, yeah. And Warren's like, boy, I noticed when I offered that that Scott got really sad. I wonder if dot, dot, dot. Beast and Iceman, um, apparently they their homes are in the city, so they don't have as far to go. They're going to just take a bus. They offer Cyclops to come along. He says no. He wants to sulk Professor X is worried about him. But his worry changes to something more pressing when he gets a hold of the newspaper, Mutant Menace, and it's way worse than just the title because it talks about Trask and eminent anthropologist Trask says that all mankind is doomed and then he somehow got an artist to render like these really bad pictures of what the future might look like. Mutants like whipping um, enslaved humans and making them do gladiatorial sports, gladiatorial, gladiatorial sports and stuff. So Professor X is like, oh no, the day has finally come. I knew this was going to happen. And he calls up the local uh, television place and he says, I am renowned scientist Professor Xavier and I want to have a one-on-one debate with Trask. And they're like, we've heard of you and it would be a privilege to have you. So he sets that up. And he goes on TV and he's like, mutants are not that way. Mutants are good. And they're just people with powers. They're not crazy tyrants or overlords but meanwhile it cuts to the public watching this television and not a single one of them is buying it they all think xavier looks weird has vulcan eyebrows no hair something weird about this guy meanwhile trask's response is to go crazy and say no they're a menace they're gonna kill us all here i created this thing to stop them and he presses a button and he goes imagine if professor x was a mutant i mean of course he's not but imagine if he was this is what we could do and suddenly, out of nowhere, behind a curtain, a big, giant, purple robot comes out and grabs up Professor X. He says, see, I've made like 20, or I've made five of these things, and they're designed to stop any mutants, or detect mutants, and, you know, destroy them with their cool powers. But don't worry, Professor, I know this one's grabbing you inappropriately, but I am in complete control. Why don't you let the Professor go? And the Sentinel's like, actually, we are smarter than you, and shoots task trask and he's like oh no i didn't see that coming (laughs) um so now there's a trouble because now they've like taken over the newsroom and all this stuff and they're talking about how like in order for us to in order for us sentinels to protect humans we must rule them because ai has never done that before so we cut to the 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 Iceman and beast in their normal forms as bobby and hank and they're at a beatnik coffee house thing and listening to bad poetry and Bobby's pretending to hit on a girl. And then Professor X reaches out with his mind and says, come to me, my X-Men. So they all dress up. They all make their way over there. Warren is at dinner at his home and he hears it and says, oh, sorry, parents, I have to go and I can't explain why. And they're like, well, you're an adult and we trust you. So he goes, "Um, let's see what happens. Oh, Professor X, in order to stop everybody from panicking, he uses that like you know, global telepathic shutdown thing he does. And they all go to sleepy sleep just as Iceman and Beast come in. They start fighting the one um, Sentinel because the rest have flown off with Trask because they need to keep Trask alive because he's the only one who can build more of them and they want more Cybermen. So the one left behind to watch and guard those humans is attacked by Beast and Iceman. They don't do such a great job though. Meanwhile, Cyclops is in a taxi trying to make it back. Um, 
And he's telling the guy to go faster and faster, and the guy's driving recklessly, and his glasses fall off. And the beam shoots out the front of the window. And the taxi guy pulls over, and he's like, you're one of those mutants that Trask guy was talking about. Hey, everybody, he's a mutant. Get him. And the mob's like, rabble. And they all go running after him. And he's like, wow, it sucks to be a mutant. He rounds the corner and turns into Cyclops. And he uh, joins into the fight with uh, um, Beast and Iceman. And they're not doing so well because the robot is faster than them and stronger than them and nothing they're doing is really hurting him. And, of course, he's a robot, so even Professor X can't knock him out telepathically. But then at some point, the robot clutches his chest and shouts, Rosebud, and falls over unexpectedly. And they're like, what the heck? Meanwhile, we cut to Angel, who's still trying to make his way, but he encounters, like, the Seven or whatever that flew off of Trask. So he tries to – he figures – Something's wrong there. I don't know what they are, but they look weird. So he goes to investigate. The Senators are like, hey, we detect, we detect mutant activity. And they start shooting at him. Um, but someone pulls him from the sky and, and uh, pins him to the top of a train. And the Sentinels can't find where he went. So they just move on. That someone turns out to be um, um, Jean Grey, who is now calling herself Marvel Girl. Uh, and she's putting on her outfit, and she saw through the window that Angel was in trouble, so she telepathically pulled him away from the fight. And now she's telepathically flying up to the top of the car, the train car, for the first time, flying. Um, and the two of them are hooked up, and they go reconnoiter with the rest of the group, and the rest of the group is like trying to figure out what fell this one sentinel. And Professor X is like, no, Michael was wrong. It didn't say Rosebud. It said Master Mold. What's Master Mold? We don't know. Let's go find out. Wait, wait. As I sit here trying to telepathically link myself to a robotic artificial mind that 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 it, it shouldn't work, but it's kind of working, and I can sense a location, but just a location. So let's go to that location. So that location, by the way, is this weird underground bunker with this crazy-looking, um, I don't know, it's like a clear egg with atomic properties on the inside or something and trask is like you guys shouldn't be here but before they can really get into what it is the sentinel sense that someone's approaching on the radar it is the x-men they get there it just looks like a grassy knoll and they're like are you sure this is right professor yeah we think it's right and then all of a sudden the grassy knoll lifts up in this robotic weaponry starts shooting at them and it's to be continued actually it again says the end but i think there's another issue there might be another issue Mm mm-hmm or that could just be the death of the expert at the bottom there. It might be. They could be done. Yeah. Okay. So wow. Sentinels. Yes. Have you ever – have you um, disliked – not disliked them but never been all excited about them like me or is that just me? Um, no, I, I, I dig the Sentinels. I think my first real X-Men story was the first episode of the cartoon, which oh, is yeah, with, with Night Sentinels. of the Sentinels. Yeah. Right. I don't know. I just kind of like – I never really – I liked how they were in um, – the movie we covered mm-hmm. in the future where they like seemingly can change their body to meet any sort of attack, mm-hmm. you know, that makes sense. But just giant purple robots. I never felt like that was the be all end all of the mutant race. Yeah. Doing new stuff with them and making them interesting is sort of an ongoing effort by the writers. Uh huh. Cause um, yeah, it does feel like a really simple plot idea. Like these, like these five giant robots come out and say, "We will destroy all mutant kind." And like the X Men could just say, "Magneto, you got this," because you know, I you think, could just turn them into tinfoil. I think one of the things that happens that makes them interesting is linking them to the Days of Future Past timeline. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, that's probably where they're the most interesting, yeah. Yeah, because then all of this stuff feels like it's leading to that. Yeah. But I have to say, that other than Magneto, I don't think there's another thread that is so, like, iconically linked with the X-Men. That's probably true. And ironically, I think the Magneto could just destroy them in three seconds, so. <laughs> yeah, he could. Unless they're made of some sort of metal that he can't control for some reason. But... So Jack Kirby is only doing layouts at this point in the comic, and he is leaving soon. I forget exactly when, but I know the Sentinels saga is like his last big heyday. It still feels a little Kirby-like, but the overall details are definitely not him anymore. Yeah, and I actually saw um, for an X-Force issue, like Liefeld layouts next to Mignola's finished art page. Ooh, that'd be weird. Yeah, yeah. Um, But just seeing like how rough layouts are mm-hmm. like when you say someone's doing layouts and you see the other person's art name you're like wow this really looks a lot like this other person not so much like the layout person it's because the layouts could just be like like sketches they're not actually I drawn think, over like inking is done on top of pencils i always thought like the layout is like the decision making you know in terms of story pacing right but you're you're not doing any of the detail work that a penciler would do. But like a lot of a lot of, it's not easy deciding. You know how many panels is this? Especially the way Stanley wrote, which he just wrote in paragraphs. He didn't do panel per panel scripting. Mm-hmm. So so you have to on page one, you have to accomplish showing these five people. He probably just explained what the five people were doing and what kind of contraption. And now it's totally up to you how you lay that out. And that's like a big part of comic book drawing so i could see that being split up if you're trying to save some time yeah yeah that whole thought process of actually breaking down the story into pages and panels is definitely a creative process so i'm not trying to discount it i'm just like i didn't realize that as far as actual artwork yeah rough and little it's done you know inking is done on top of the pencils in my head i always saw pencils as being on top of the layouts and it's more like the layouts is this like page roughly sketched yeah. next to you that like, you're using as a guide. It's just like stick figures, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, cover announcement. Cover announcement? Okay. This book is now monthly. Oh, yes, yes. I forgot about that. That's what that caption said at the end. And Daredevil is also going monthly. So starting oh, out boy. next month, we're going to have 10 issues each month instead of nine. Our rotation is going to change. Mm-hmm. But I'm happy with that because I feel like – it takes forever for us to get to X-Men and Daredevil books, so it's cool. Yeah, yeah. And honestly, it's that way for two years. It's going to be another one of those. If we get there, we might get another comic. But these 10 issues every month is going to be our 10 issues every month until late 1967. Yeah. But the stories will get good. The stories. They are. They already are good. But yeah, like, yeah. you know, upcoming events I know are going to be pretty amazing. Sometimes. Yeah, we're getting, we're definitely getting. Well, I, I feel like we're right now, we're like in the mid Silver Age for Marvel. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, we did, we did the finding our feet, breaking our bones, you know, really early silver age primitive stuff. And I was sort of in this like midpoint where things are definitely fleshed out. They're definitely finding their footing or, or they have found their footing, but we're not quite to like, I mean, when Ditko leaves and Romita comes on and, you know, when Cat's America really gets into the swing of his series and, you know, Galactus and after Galactus, I mean, that's. There's there's a lot more going on in the future. But that's all for the future. So so I think I've checked in a couple times with us, like how we rank these team books because we've got three. Mm-hmm. And I think last time I think I said that I was enjoying X Men the most, partly just because I've never read these early early X Men. Mm-hmm. 
And I think maybe I ranked Fantastic Four my least favorite at the time because it was just kind of a bad time for Fantastic Four. And now I kind of feel like, wow, Fantastic Four is way up there. And Avengers is pretty good. And X-Men is my least favorite. X-Men. Though I still enjoy it. It's well, it's not always easy to enjoy. I mean, and yeah, when Kirby leaves, it's going to have some really rough patches. But yeah, um, the the Fantastic Four has definitely hit a high creatively. And the Avengers, you know, the Avengers is decent. Um, I think it's better than it was. I think now that we've abandoned the founders, like it's getting better. mm -hmm. The founder stuff, as much as they flash back to it, like I didn't find that all that impressive. It was okay. I like the good X-Men issues more than I like the good Avengers issues. Yeah. But I think the X-Men's mm-hmm. going to have some lower lows than the Avengers tends to have. <laughs> they both, yes. I mean, okay, not to spoil the future. Roy Thomas is a fantastic creator. Mm-hmm. But his first work at Marvel is difficult. <laughs> so we'll just have to see yeah. how that goes when we get there. But it's, you know, and he starts out on Avengers and X-Men. Also, not to spoil the future, the X-Men will be the most popular thing Marvel's ever done, and it all becomes X-Men, X-Men, X-Men all the time. So, right. You know, they'll get there eventually. If we get there. If we get there. That's a long that time. That is a coming. solid 10 years of comics away. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but we are now getting to the mutants being mutants because we've got the menace. Yes. They've hinted at the menace here and there. We had a beast moment where he was, you know, attacked by some menace. Toad was attacked by some menace, but this is menace. These people are no longer happy with mutants. And, you know, we get a contrast at the beginning because the beast has a bit of a bigoted moment, uh-huh. which is kind of unusual for him. He's, I mean, he's lost his powers. He's frustrated, but Xavier calls him out for it. Mm-hmm. And that sets up a tone of we're different, but we work, you know, we try to live, you know, peaceably with all people. Mm-hmm. And then later it's the humans are not that. Yeah, we don't think of humans as inferior. Let's not forget that. Mm -hmm. Although, if you want to make that a story or a character beat, like I said, Beast is the only one who's been attacked by humans. So maybe he's feeling a little bitter. Oh, that's true. That's true. He might be. Yeah, actually, that could be resonating with him right then. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so this whole anti-mutant sentiment does not come out of a vacuum. We have seen the stirrings. Mm-hmm. But it just gets really full swing, and this I think it becomes a standard expectation going forward. Yeah, I would imagine it did. I just assumed it did at this point, which is cool because that's what we want, right? Mm-hmm. So I like this. I mean, unless you have something before page four, I like this little bit with like, well, actually, it's kind of interesting. Like, they're setting up this idea that mutants are going to be hated, and you know, we get that first dialogue of be careful, we don't consider humans inferior. And then later we have Bobby and Angel, and Bobby's like, Nobody would care if they found out about you. And Angel's like, yeah, um, nobody asked you. Just keep taping. Like, I don't believe you. Of course they'd care. So we kind of have like these characters that are sort of maybe on the fence as to whether they should come out or not come out. Yeah. and Or some have different attitudes about it than others. When I was reading this the first time through, not the first time through, because I've read this like 20 times, but uh, when I was reading this particular scene, I was like, well, why didn't Warren tell his parents? Like, I know. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know if I should say this because you don't know a lot of stuff that happens. But no. it's kind of ways down the road. Warren does go public. Uh-huh. After his parents die. Well, that made me think of page 10 where he's like, mom, dad, I can't explain, but I must leave at once. I, must, I just remembered something vitally important. And his dad's like, it's all right, son. You're old enough to know what you're doing. 
if we can be at all of help. Now, that's a very healthy parental response. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just, okay, we trust you. You're an adult. You got to go and you can't explain. That's cool. So that makes me wonder why he thinks he can't tell them. Because it almost, it seems like they're really cool parents. Yeah. I just, in the first scene, I was wondering if maybe they, if they maybe they were like not cool parents. But then, yeah, whenever they get together, it's, they really do seem legitimately good people. Which doesn't mean they won't flip out. You don't know. I mean, maybe they've had conversations about mutants that we don't know about. And his dad's like, oh, yeah, glad we're not one of those. You know, who knows? Or maybe the dad is self-delusional. Maybe he thinks he's super supportive but isn't. Or, yeah, you could be supportive of your kid but still a a, a bigot or something. Right, I right. Um, I did poke fun at the art on page four because wings don't fold like that. <laughs> there that are bones. Weird. In the wings, and also Bobby is totally helping Warren get wrapped up here. Uh-huh. And second panel, Bobby looks happy to be helping. Uh-huh. I know. I, I've been doing the hindsight thing, too. I don't know if that's fair, but hey, that's the future, so you might as well look into it now. Again. Grab Read the into subtext it now. when you can. Yep. That's why I said in my summary, he's pretending to hit on a girl, <laughs> uh, even though they're trying to make it look like he's a womanizer. I didn't get the beast thing. Like, how come wrapping something around your big feet makes your feet not big anymore? I don't know. I was really trying to figure out what that was. I don't know if it's like a a sock layer, because he can't put socks over his toes. Also, he has specially hinged shoes, so the front flap opens. That's weird. I don't see the point of that, especially since they they don't lace up anyway. So what's the deal? I guess room for his toes to stick out without being constricted by the shoe. Maybe if he has to quickly climb a wall he can just open the hinge and <laughs> or his feet pop out toes pop out i don't know they make it be done on cyclops's sunglasses but we have seen those before i think it's cool did, to show huh? the visor lift up with his eyes closed behind them mm-hmm. um we don't see cyclops's i guess we don't see jeans home either so two of the both of them we don't get to see them make it home no we've seen jeans parents before actually let me backpedal already the only home we saw was angel because the other two went to a bar or a coffee shop. Right. And oh, that's like the one we've been to thing. before. That's going to be there. There's, I mean, it's been like a year, but we've been there before. Yeah. So that means the only parental anything we know is that is Warren's really. He's a, he's a wealthy kid. We've seen Gene's parents. I mean, they, they love, oh, her they did they come. Get, yeah, they, they that's right. Up. They did show up, but that's it. Yeah. We don't know about beast, Iceman or Cyclops. Do we know that he's an orphan? Not yet. I don't know that. No. So that's a shame. We don't have a I think, big. Um, I, th- I think I remember reading this and thinking a little bit like I wish we had got more of them all going home for a little while, you know. Mm-hmm. But they just quickly abandoned that for sentinel fighting. So no one else realizes that Scott likes Gene, which I I felt like I remembered differently. Like I remember the other guys knowing that Scott likes Gene, but Warren definitely does not know that Scott likes Gene. And Gene does not know that Scott likes Gene. No, because she's she's always like, I wish he would like me, but right. he just seems so. You know, introverted or serious. Um, the pictures of the gladiatorial and everything and the chariot <laughs> na- of the mutant rulers. How dare you say that word so easily? Yeah. That doesn't look entirely unlike Namor. I know, right? So could we take this like either as a memory of his attack from World War II and like what could have happened or mm-hmm. even the Fantastic Four annual invasion that got staved off. And speaking of like slippery slope uh, news reporting mm-hmm. from Thor, I was thinking of um, 
Like this just seems very inappropriate, but I don't know if the Daily Globe is a legit paper or a a rag, but it was delivered to the Xavier's front door. And I don't think he would like subscribe to the Inquirer. No, the Daily Globe is the Daily Bugle's biggest competition. But I can't figure out if the Daily Bugle is a <laughs> legit paper. I think it is supposed to be. But. Yeah, I think it is too. So this just seems like really um, – I mean, I don't know what the rules are for newspaper reporting, but just artist interpretation of something that never happened, you know? Like, that is that news? That's just scaring people. That's like muckraking. Hey, yeah. look at that. I learned something in grade school. I've never – I don't know. I mean – you have things like political cartoons and stuff that will like do caricatures, but not usually as part of an article. But then I wasn't alive when like the newspapers were like fear mongering mm-hmm. other races. Artist interpretation of fate of mankind if mutants are not driven out as predicted by Dr. Bolivar Trask. Mm-hmm. Now I guess they're crediting it. So there, maybe that is part of the story, like his predictions. This is what he thinks there will look like. But I don't know. It just seems odd that there's no real – who cares what he thinks? And by the way, how does an anthropologist create a robot? But outside of that. Yeah, that's a whole thing, right? That's a whole thing. I like that Xavier at some point says, oh, he's only an anthropologist, so he didn't understand how to make a robotic brain that wouldn't take over the world or something like that. It's like he could make one that could take over the world, but – if he was, if only he wasn't an anthropologist, they'd have been more obedient. The idea of Xavier speaking to the public about mutants—I mm-hmm. mean, that's gonna, that's like a staple of his character later. Yeah, this is like the first time he's done that. This is the first time, so and this, apparently, he is a scientist of stature, but not the quote-unquote expert on mutation that he's going to become later. Like they don't—he's right. not associated with that notion yet. So he was at the. Uh, 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 the wedding or the rehearsal or something of the Fantastic Four. Is that what it was? Mm-hmm. Where was he at? And we asked, like, well, why would Xavier be there? Um, but he's a scientist of some stature. So maybe Reed actually knows who he is. Okay. Well, okay. No, we talked about that. The He was at the engagement party. And he pretended not to know the X-Men. The, you're right. But the previous issue of Fantastic Four, Reed Richards – went to state university and ran into Xavier on campus. He's like, Oh yeah, I've heard of you. Yeah. So maybe, yeah, by reputation. Yeah. Maybe he does know him. I want to want, want to know what kind of scientist he is. Do we know hmm. Well, he hasn't found a cure for baldness yet. I, I think this is the first time they've talked to, about him being a scientist and not just a head of a school. Oh, you're right. So hmm. I don't know. What is he a scientist of anthropology? But like you were saying earlier, this is, this is where the metaphor from mutants really starts to come into play mutants uh-huh. standing in as marginalized people uh-huh. especially those whose reasons for being marginalized are less visible like being gay um mm-hmm. all of that really becomes a factor here you can start hiding mm-hmm. i mean they're kind of hiding anyway even before this mutant menace newspaper thing but you know iron man also hides so you can chalk that up to them just hiding their powers because they don't want to be known as superheroes but now it's about something else yeah, and honestly, knowing that you're different and not being sure how to bring your differences to the notice of the people who care about you, mm-hmm. that's uh, probably human nature. But now they're really saying, by the way, the world is going to be bigoted against these differences. It feels very Red McCarthy-ish. Yeah, and the only other team book we have that's like teams living together is the Fantastic Four, and they don't care about their identities at all. Right. So we, we haven't had the heart-to-heart of like, 
Iron Man and Cap going, you know, Tony, you probably could just come out as Iron Man and it'd be okay. They don't do that. Yeah. Um, so in the Wilson house, early in my relationship, my, my marriage my, with Bess, there were three rules. Mm-hmm. First rule was don't fart in bed. Okay. Second rule was don't talk during Jeopardy. Mm. And the third rule was don't build evil robots. Really? Yes. Now, when we had kids, we had to come up with more rules. These were just right. the rules between me and her, mm-hmm. mostly for me. Uh huh. But don't build evil robots was an official Wilson rule, and this is why: you build the evil robot, and you think you can control it, but no, you no. cannot. Obviously, this dude has not seen RoboCop or Terminator. I wrote I Robot Terminator is a good one. Yeah. I wonder what would happen if the Sentinels and the Decepticons got together. But see, these guys are still following their program. It's just that they've decided to interpret it differently than Trask thought they would have. Right. Which they are going to take care of us humans. They just have to do it by ruling us because we're so chaotic and stupid. Exactly. Yeah. Also, their heads are really big. Uh-huh. Makes me okay. Cool. Marvel Girl. Now, you mentioned that. I feel like we've seen that title before. Are you sure? I thought they've been calling her Jean Grey this whole time. I really... I mean... They don't use it a whole lot, but I feel like she's been Marvel Girl since the first issue. Hmm. Well, I don't know. I feel like this is the first time I've read it, but I'm not sure. I'm going to go research that. And uh, the first time she's fl- flown, flied, fluted. Did she fly? She's been, I've been practicing this feat for a month, and she, she flies out of the train window and lands on the top to join Angel. Oh, sweet. So, and she pulled him out of the sky just by looking through the window. So it's like she's getting stronger. Did you notice that she was not even in the comic from page five to page 17? <laughs> yeah, that is a problem. I realized that like everybody went their separate ways and Scott had only just returned three pages earlier, but still. Yeah. And in the juggernaut fight, she was pretty much just like Xavier's ex- assistant while the rest of them all did the hard work, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's a little weird. I hope that maybe next issue she can kick some butt, but she got his wheelchair out of the trunk. So that was good. Before we get to the end of the comic, I do have one thing to say about page 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, page 10, first panel, uh, Beast and Iceman are getting into their blues and yellows. Mm-hmm. And Hank says, I somehow feel unfaithful to the superhero code when I change in an alley this way. A phone booth seems to be the accepted place. I thought of you when I read that. So for those who don't know, the trope of Superman changing in a phone booth is weirdly much more rooted in pop culture than in the actual comic stories. Hmm. Almost non-existent in the comics. Um, he always goes to the Daily Planet storeroom and changes there. It's theorized that the animated releases in the 40s that came to the theaters were seen by so many people. And that, that in those, he does change the phone booth like once or twice. Mm. And so that visual just like stuck in the in the American consciousness. I feel but, like that happens a lot with DC characters. Yeah, like there's the idea of the character much more than the actual character. Like you were saying the other day, like he doesn't say Great Row forever. I'm in 1977. He has said Great Row in exactly one comic book. Yeah, and you would think that would have been a total 50s thing or something. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, at least a total 70s thing. But the 70s are almost over, and it's not a thing. At least in my reading. Yeah, but also I think it's funny that he thinks that – Changing into a superhero in a back alley is not the accepted method when really it totally is now. At Marvel, that's what everyone does, right? Yeah, everyone does. That's such a Spider-Man move. Daredevil, Thor smashes his hammer in back alleys. 
I didn't even know what an alley was till I started reading comics, probably. Uh, we don't have alleys here. It's an alley. Okay, so they hear the phrase master mold. Uh-huh. And Hank is like, I, 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 I don't know what that is. Yeah. So I feel like master mold is a phrase. So I did a web search on it. And yes, a lot of the hits, if you search master mold, are going to be X-Men related. But there are definitely some that aren't. Okay. And the term does have wider use, especially in the area of plastics and such. Now, sure. maybe 1965 is too young in the plastics industry for, you know, even a well-read brain like Hank McCoy to have some come across it. But I just feel like you should have some clue. If Stan knows, if Stan Lee is writing the story and knows what a master mold is, Hank McCoy should know what master mold is. Well, if it's a robot, he could probably be like, oh, this robot has a number six on it. I wonder if there's a master. Right. I, I mean, they really broke the mold when they made this one, right? <laughs> that doesn't really help them solve the case, per se, but at least they could theorize a little bit. Yeah, Instead of just guess. having no idea. Use yeah. the actual phrase in its common English vernacular. What does this mean? Yeah. Maybe there's a master sentinel somewhere that all these others are being copied off of. And like you said in the synopsis, I really don't like when Xavier can read electronic minds. I don't either. And at least this time they made it so he couldn't for most of it. And then only in the very end did he get a vague impulse. Although mm. I still don't know how that would work. I don't either. But whatever. Whatever. Sergeant Fury? Sergeant Fury! All right. And it's your turn. Sergeant Fury 24. When the Howlers hit the home front. Written by Stan Lee, Army Vet. Penciled by Dick Ayers, Air Force Vet. Inked by Frank Ray, Air Force vet, lettered by S. Rosen, teacher's pet. So we start with Captain Happy Sam Sawyer giving the Howlers a furlough. They get to go home. Yay! And the Sarge is like, yeah, I'm going to go home with you. And they're like, yay, Sarge, you're going to come with us. Um, They go to the United States. Um, Dino goes and makes a whole series of phone calls. I figure he's talking to all of his girlfriends. Uh, Dugan does not want to go home. He's going to stay with them because he doesn't want to see his wife or his mother-in-law. Um, Izzy Klein does break off of the rest of the team and goes to see his family uh, at the... Um, no, he doesn't break off from everybody else. Everyone goes with Izzy to see Izzy's family, the Coens. Uh, his dad is a, a car mechanic. Izzy is, of course, also the mechanic on the team. Better car mechanic than his dad. They all have dinner. They're hanging out with Izzy. Um, they go to a restaurant. They Gabe Jones picks up a trumpet and plays some jazz on the stage. Some uh, zoot suiters come in and try to rough up the place, but they rough them up instead. They're walking around, and they go to a USO show, and we find out why Dino is making all those phone calls earlier. He's called a whole bunch of celebrities from Hollywood, a lot of his old friends from the movies, to come say hi to the Howlers. So we're shaking hands with Bob Hope, and I wrote down their names, but I forget who it is now. Um, lots of people. Bob mm -hmm. Hope is the only one I can remember off the top of my head. There we go. Groucho Marx, Bing Crosby, Glenn Miller, Jimmy Durante, lots of fun people. So um, then... Fury decides to check in with Reb because Reb went home and Reb answers the phone all tense. He's like, I can't really talk right now. Turns out there's a gun to his head and Reb uses a couple of code words while sounding like he's talking nonchalantly. And Fury's like, okay, 
We're going to Kentucky because we got to check out what's going on with Reb. Things are bad. So they go to Reb's house. He has this big old mansion. Um, there are some Buntists, which are um, basically an American Nazi military operation. They have taken up residence in Reb Ralston's home. Uh, the commandos show up and they basically help beat the Buntists. Uh, Hitler hears about it is like, oh my gosh. The reason the Buntists were there is because they were trying to find some information about the Manhattan Project. And they thought that either the Ralstons or somebody near the Ralstons would have information. So they were in the Ralstons' house. All of that fell apart. So Hitler still does not know what the Manhattan Project is. Make a long story tolerable. They beat the uh, Germans, uh, not the Germans, the American Nazis away. And... The Ralston parents are so happy that they decide to uh, keep little uh, little Hans. I forgot Hans even with them. Hans is <laughs> with them and uh, has been in the story the entire time, but I forgot. No, no, you didn't forget. We'll have to talk about that. Okay. Okay. So Hans has been there mysteriously the entire time. Yes. And yes. they're like, hey, um, the war is dangerous for a kid. And, you know, y'all look like Ma and Pa Kent. You want to adopt this child? And so they adopt Hans. Dum Dum Dugan got roughed up in the fight, and he's on a stretcher, but he's going to be okay. They get an emergency summons, furloughs canceled, back to base. They fly back to London. The end. So do you think they're like, you know, this Dum Dum? His per- his personality is just is just too unique and interesting. Let's remove him from the book. <laughs> Remember that time they went on furlough and didn't want the sergeant going with them? Yeah, but this and is that, to America, I guess. Um. But yeah, to, to, to talk about the Hans thing, I swear he's not in this book until p- page 15 when suddenly he's there. Okay, okay. Like, like how would he have been there partying with them? He can't do that. Oh, you're right. He can't go to that bar and everything? Yeah, it's just weird. I was just like, who? I almost forgot he existed, by the way. And now they got rid of him. He's in the very first panel when they're getting Is ready he? to go on a mission and he wants to go with them. Oh, I just don't remember him being anywhere else in this story. Okay, he He's not is at the dinner occasionally, table. occasionally in a crowd scene, but not all the crowd scenes. Oh, there he is right there on page five. Right. He's on page How? two. Jesus. But yeah, he's, he's, he's just so non-existent. The fact that he suddenly was there was like, what? Right. So yeah, um, the stuff with home and the USO show and the celebrities was fun. Um, giving them stuff so to do. The, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that they went to that restaurant and Gabe Jones was there. I thought it was interesting that they, I mean, because even with the zoot suiters coming in, roughing things up, I just kind of expected some element of racial discrimination to be brought into the scene. <laughs> and beyond uh-huh. subtext, it's just not really there. Like even before, at that place was like his uncle's or something. But before that, he's having dinner at uh, Izzy's house. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, boy, 1965, this would probably not go well for 1965. And then I realized, no, wait, this is supposed to be 1940-something. Yeah. And there's a whole table full of white people. Izzy is, I don't know what he's supposed to be. He's Jewish-American. He's Jewish-American. Okay, so maybe they're used to being tread on to, and therefore they're more accepting of a black man at the dinner table with them? Possibly. I I have no idea how those dynamics worked back then. I don't know either if this was a common thing or an uncommon thing, but they sure didn't say anything about it. And they do focus on him a lot. And uh, honestly, yeah. that, that doesn't ever have to be the story. You can tell period pieces 
that don't have to dive into the racial politics unless that's the story you want to tell. Mm-hmm. But I just was surprised. But his, his uncle owns the club they go to. Mm-hmm. And I would think, and I don't know if I'm right, but I would think that if you're a black owner, your club is a black club. I don't know. Maybe that's not true. Maybe that wasn't true, I mean. But it just feels like it was true. Yeah. I don't know. Like like there was a divide going on. But anyway, Zoot Suiters, wow, that was kind of interesting. But you know what's funny is this, I thought, because this goes on for a while, like they make it to page seven before any sort of real drama starts happening. Mm-hmm. And I thought, are they going to do with this book what they did not do for me with the X-Men and actually just have this whole thing about be about them going home and reuniting with their friends and family? That would be so awesome. It but was largely did. about that. And even though they go over to the Ralstons, it's still like, that's their home. Yeah. So I think it was all, it was almost a more successful idea than they pulled off in the X-Men. Cause the X-Men, we just get teased and then doesn't really happen except with Warren for five seconds. Mm-hmm. I liked all that stuff. Are you ready for history, history corner? Yeah. Okay. I looked up the boot. It seemed okay, good. unlikely to me that full uniformed Nazis with connections to Hitler could be operating in the United States. I, yeah. And this story definitely takes some liberties. Mm-hmm. Um, the Bunt organization was a direct successor to a group called the Friends of New Germany, which mm-hmm. was an American Nazi political party based in New York City in the 30s. Okay. They had a very strong presence in Chicago. They were based in New York. Their uniform was a white shirt, black pants, and a black hat. Um, and that group was mostly led by German citizens living in the U.S., and mm. it was directly endorsed by the German Nazi party. So that was a thing. Okay. But when it yeah. fell apart in the late 30s, American citizens of German descent formed this group called the German American Bund. It was pro-Nazi. Their administration structure mirrored that of the Nazi party. They definitely propagated a revisionist view of history, claiming George Washington was the first fascist. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was certainly a force for Nazi propaganda in the U.S., or at least it tried to be. But again, this was all in the 30s, before World War II. Oh. Soon after the war breaks out in Europe, it goes into a sharp decline. By the time America enters the war after Pearl Harbor, it's pretty much no longer a thing. And in 1942 a number of German Americans signed a declaration condemning Nazism. Oh. Uh, so. Well, I guess since this is the Marvel Universe, they could amp it up a little bit and throw on some costumes and make them a threat or something. Yeah, make them last a bit longer. And maybe this was like one like really diehard group that mm-hmm. hadn't fallen apart yet. Yeah. But then again, it's funny that Nick knows exactly what to call them when really they're already should be irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Fun fact, though. Yeah. Uh, government investigation into the Friends of New Germany led to the formation of the Special Committee on Un-American Activities, which Uh-oh. became the House Un-American Activities Committee, which Uh-oh. was kind of a big deal during the post-war communist scare. Uh-oh. And then 50s Cap did some bad stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Reb is really named Robert. <laughs> that was kind of funny. I I have to remind myself over and over and over again that him going by Reb, as in Rebel, as in Confederacy. Mm-hmm. is not, not great. Not reminding myself that it's not great, but just remind myself that, you know, it's it wasn't intended to be a big deal, so we're not going to make a big deal out of it. Yeah. Well, a lot of this sexism probably wasn't intended to be a big deal either, but we do because we want to try and be better. Yeah. So. He gets along with Gabe, so, you yeah. know, 
Yeah, he's never said anything weird like, I wish the South had won or something. Right. Civil War wasn't even about slavery. It was about states' rights. No. Yeah. <laughs> they haven't had that conversation in Sergeant Fury and his Howling right. Commandos. Right, yet. right. Dum uh, Dum gets shot. I assume he. See, the thing is, all the tension's gone because, well, we know Dum Dum's going to live, definitely, but like nobody's going to die in this book anymore. We know that. Yeah, I thought about that with the um, with the annuals. Like, okay, everybody lives. Yeah, that's what I mean. That annual just basically made it so none of us, none of none of these people are at risk anymore. I guess, but we knew Dum Dum's not going to die because he's been around forever. He's Dum Dum Dugan. He's Dum Dum Dugan. In fact, we see so, him and Gabe Jones in the future in the next issue. I'm pretty. I'm kind of bummed about uh, old uh, Hans Rutten pretty much getting nothing and then getting written off. Eh, that went nowhere. Yeah, it really did. I kind of felt like they were going to do something else with it. Like there's another shoe that was going to drop it with a whole him and his dad thing. Yeah. Nope. They're like, no, we will care for and love this boy until the war is over and then we'll ship him back. Mm-hmm. And never see him again because, you know, so, Rebel will be home. I don't really have anything else in this book. Okay. Does that mean we have one more to go tonight? One Today? more to go. I always say tonight like we're live or something, but they could be listening to this in the morning for all I know. Um. Strange Tales 139 with a really cool cover that is neato because it's the first page of the Nick Fury story, but like being read by Doctor Strange. So, like he's reading the newspaper cool. or something, and it's Nick Fury's yeah. Sergeant Tit. But because like they used to do the split cover, and now they're kind of trading back and forth. I like this idea of like sort of having them both on it, but at the same time, it's maybe probably cheating because he didn't have to draw it twice. But anyway. The first one is Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., The Brave Die Hard. Oh, wait. There's a big arrow saying almost everybody reads S.H.I.E.L.D., as in even Doctor Strange reads S.H.I.E.L.D. Mm-hmm. So it's like That's a big funny. over... It's, but it would be cooler if it was like a comic book size or something. But it's like this yeah. giant poster. Um, sensationally written by Stan Lee. Spectacularly laid out by Jack Kirby. Superbly illustrated by Joe Sinnott. Silently lettered by Artie Semek. While a deadly Betatron bomb orbits over Earth, threatening our civilization as we know it, Nick Fury is a prisoner of the most dangerous army of evil ever known, the Secret Order of Hydra. Um, Then it says we won't explain what's going on, because what's going on is really weird. Last we saw, he was just captured. But now he's floating in space, and ice is forming over his body, because humans can't float in space. And behind him is this weird organic electronic robot dog frog thing and he's thinking to himself they want to know about the brainosaur but i'll tell them nothing and then a dragon flies up and shoots flame at the robot robot dog frog thing and suddenly nick is surrounded by fire and just as we wonder what is going on it turns out they have him strapped in a doohickey and they're torturing him his mind. So it's all just computer-fed information. He's not really in space. He's fine. He's just being tortured. But he's not giving up information about the brainosaur. So the guys who are running that go back to the head Hydra and they say, he's not giving up. And head Hydra's like, well, he's a pretty tough guy. But, uh, you know, let's keep trying. So we cut to S.H.I.E.L.D. and uh, Tony Stark talking about the brainosaur, which is what's going to go up there and, you know, deal with the Betatron bomb if they can get it up there. He's got a scale model to show everybody. They're all kind of wondering if Nick Fury is dead 
uh, should they replace? Should we get a new agent of shield or, you know, head of shield? And Tony Stark's like, well, let's see if his buddies can fix it first. So we cut to his buddies, Gabe and Dum Dum, um, going off to try and like rescue their rescue uh their friend. Anyway, back in prison, Nick Fury is in like this round yellow lemon looking thing with a window, and they feed him via this tray that kind of spins around like a bank thing. And inside what they're feeding him and this is important. I know it seems like it's not important, but they're feeding him these high-tech meals that are like in a package. And when you open the package, it makes this big spark. Um, and then somehow that magically turns into the food that's written on it, like steak or fruit or coffee. Um, but keep, rem- you know, remember that big stark spark phenomenon because as he's eating, uh, the Hydra leader's daughter reveals herself to be the Hydra leader's daughter and says, you other men, my dad told me to talk to Nick Fury alone, so you get lost. And they're like, well, that seems wrong, but we have to listen to the Hydra leader's daughter. So they leave, and she's like, Nick, if you, if I help you escape, will you help me? You have to promise not to hurt my dad. And he's like, I can't promise that. I want to kill your dad so bad. So I'll just, I'll just escape myself. Why don't you stand over there in the corner, pretty lady, and I'm going to take my shirt off because they took all my other spy gadgets, but they didn't realize my shirt is also a cool spy gadget. And he wraps it around the feeding tray, and then he lights it on fire by opening one of those things I was just telling you about, those steak packets, and the sparks ignite his shirt just as a group of Hydra are coming back going, hey, wait a minute, you tricked us. His prison blows up and kills them all, and he escapes, and she's like, okay, well, you got out by yourself. I guess I'll still help you. He's like, cool, grab this machine gun. Let's go to work. Meanwhile, Gabe and Dum Dum are going over their the captured uh, Hydra Ram from a previous issue that they got. They took all the weapons off of it, but they also combed through the computer, and they figured out where it came from because I guess all the you know navigation is in there. So they – grab a bunch of shield agents they all dress up in silly outfits and they fly off to go back to wherever this ram thing came from meanwhile at a high level board meeting where there's a bunch of generic white men one of which is probably the hydra leader we're supposed to you know try and guess and care about um they hear a big boom and the whole place shakes and they all go running except for the mysterious hydra leader who goes downstairs and says dude I'm trying to conduct a meeting here, and you guys are making a lot of noises. What's going on? Nick Fury has escaped. Well, why didn't you send the Tiger Division? Which is like, you know, their Hydra Division for killing people. It's like, because your daughter's helping, and we didn't think you'd want us to kill your daughter. He's like, oh, yeah, you're right. I don't want that. So send the Automatomic Robot. So they do, and the robot, like, disarms Nick Fury and the girl, but then Nick is like a stud and he just jumps in there and like plays with the rods or something. And uh, the Hydra leader like watches this and goes, man, that Nick Fury is unstoppable. I guess I'm going to have to send the tiger unit in after all. Forget my daughter. She's annoying me anyway. But as that happens, Dum Dum and Gabe and the shield agents in the Hydra Ram show up and they start attacking. So the book ends to be continued with the tiger unit being deployed and the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. showing up and Nick Fury and the girl trying to mount a escape and all hell's going to break loose next issue, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff with Hydra is escalating. Stuff with Hydra is interesting. This beginning was bonkers, huh? In a yeah. cool way, I guess. Torturing I like, him and... I actually went back to make sure I 
didn't forget how it ended because it was like, what is going on? I did the same thing. Mm-hmm. They tricked me. Dang it. They they even said, by the way, this doesn't make any sense. We'll explain later. And I didn't trust them. <laughs> I think all the little Hydra's devotion to Supreme Hydra is super adorable. Just yes. think, within seconds, we'll be in the presence of him who will one day rule all of Earth. They seem kind of dumb, don't they? Yeah. That's not I mean, a it's great like, okay. thing. Every time I'm reading Hydra, I think of Cobra. Uh-huh. Wow. Yes. Which started out as like a multi-level marketing scam. Mm. And then this like whole little town grew up around it. And that town became Cobra. Is that how that worked? Mm-hmm. Well, I do wonder how Hydra worked if this guy is just like a board member and his wife dies when he's 40 and he somehow creates this global terrorist organization real fast. Just real quick. In response. And he has a panther that he walks around with. On a leash. I bet you the panther is the real power. Everyone is scared of the panther. Yeah. It'd be cool if like that's how they solve this in the end is like the panther just decides, okay, I'm done and kills him or something. That'd be funny. I kind of love that of all the howlers, Dugan and Jones are the ones who have lasted. Uh-huh. Like they just look like they'd make a great team. I, I am still waiting Dugan for is, a of course, the appearance, walrus. But yeah. Say what? I'm still waiting for a trumpet appearance, but I do like that it's Gabe. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Gabe's pretty great. Don't tell me he stopped playing. I hope he still plays. I hope he does too. But, but it's like, if you think about the other guys, okay, Dino Minnelli, uh, Reb um, Ralston. I mean, Pinkerton would be kind of cool to show up, but we're going to get Jasper Sitwell pretty soon, who, I don't know, for some reason has a similar energy for me. Um, yeah. And who else? Izzy Cohen? Like, none of those guys feel like S.H.I.E.L.D. It's actually pretty cool Stan's part to not pick two white guys, I guess. Yeah. 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 Um. Okay. So the part on page five. Uh-huh. Where um he tears open the steak and has the powder yeah. and it uh-huh. reacts with the air to turn into a steak. Uh-huh. That reminded me of the little trick that Ray pulls at the beginning of The Force Awakens. I don't remember what happened. She gets that um portion of food and she like oh. mixes it with water and it turns into a bread. Right. This was a really weird thing weird thing, and at first as I was reading it, I was like, is that a thing they were really trying to come up with that can't be and then i immediately realized oh this is probably a plot device for him to escape later and it was it was it's really i don't know the science it's like it sparkles and turns to sirloin steak huh we have um, i think like uh freeze-dried foods and everything were kind of a relatively new thing Uh like i've talked to my mother-in-law who was born in 1950 so she was in 15 at this point and like fast fast prepare food tv dinners all of that stuff was invented around this time you know mm-hmm. in the 1950s people made food from scratch all the time that's all you did so this well, idea of like you know instant food was was like ooh. and what's funny is nick doesn't really get how it works just like we don't but then stan has the audacity to do like a caption that explains it like it's real <laughs> For the more scientific-minded, Furious food was reduced by energy compression, and then, upon contact with air, it resumed its basic form by the instant release of the compressed energy. Which sounds like, like from a 1965 perspective, like maybe just a little bit in the future of what could actually happen. Mm-hmm. But now we're like, no. No, Stan. No, no, no. no. It just sounds like circular explanation. Reminder that the trick shirt this issue uh-huh. and the bulletproof suit from last issue we're both set up in earlier issues. Yeah, which is cool. They're catering to the consistent readers here. Yeah, that's a very Bond thing. You know, you have your explanation of all the gadgets you're going to get this mission, and then you use them all. Right. It works out. And I love that. It just it takes yeah. several issues to play out. And 
I know that annoyed some readers, but honestly, kids reading these comics. Yeah. I mean, their parents follow continued stories in newspaper comics. So yeah. I had to get every issue of the newspaper and read every day to follow their strips. Mm-hmm. The next generation has a comic that comes out once a month and they want to get every issue, you know? So right. I, f- I feel like, I feel like it's conceivable that most people are probably getting most issues. Yeah. Um, and it was a cool little idea, like to wrap the shirt around and use the food to make the shirt explode. Cause that was what its power was. It could explode. I liked all that. Yeah. I liked that. He didn't agree to not hurt. I'm <laughs> not hurt her dad. Like I'll free you. If you promise not to hurt my dad. Nah, I'm going to get out myself and then I'm going to hurt your dad. Right. Although he is the first man to ever break out of a Hydra cell. Oh yes. That, that is what they said. Is that because Hydra didn't exist six months ago? Like, I think that must, we're pretty new. The bar's not that high. <laughs> yeah. Once again, what, what other story are we reading? Oh, it's Daredevil. So Daredevil in this story, it's like both cases. I don't care what the reveal is going to be. I honestly know I won't of who Hydra leader is. Like, right. I don't know any of these white guys. I don't care. It could be any one of them. There's no particular hint. I am not going to gasp and be like, oh my God, it was the secretary the whole time. It just doesn't matter. Okay. I am kind of surprised that like those stairs seem to go all the way up to the boardroom. Uh-huh. So are they like in the basement of the office building? Or in his office, his personal office, or I don't know. Why do all this Hydra stuff in the same building as the place that you're a secret white power businessman? That's weird. Nice bit of storytelling with the tease of Tiger Division earlier and mm-hmm. Supreme Hydra not wanting to use them, mm-hmm. which brings us to the drama of his seeing no other option here at the end. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty great. It's kind of bad, sad that they don't wear tiger masks or something. They just look like Hydra agents. Yeah, they're just green with the big yellow Come H. On. I want some dangerous team tiger-looking people. So, end of Hydra, next issue. This is why we don't know what Hydra is these days. They ended mm-hmm. after just a few issues. Mm-hmm. Oh, shoot. We have a whole other story in here, don't we? I forgot about that. We do. Our last story of the episode. Are you ready for it? I am. Because beware, Dormammu is watching. Script by Sterling Stanley, art by Stalwart... Steve Ditko, lettering by Stoical. Stoical? Or should it just be Stoic? I think it should just be Stoic. Anyway, having finally found eternity, Doctor Strange returns to his own world, only to learn that the Ancient One has been captured by the evil Baron Mordo. And so it comes to pass that Strange and Mordo confront each other once more with the deadly Dormammu fiendlessly looking on. I almost got through it. Okay, so basically the setup is... Mordo and Doctor Strange are standing in this room squaring off and like Dormammu's face is on a magic TV set. Um, Doctor Strange checks on the Ancient One because Mordo's like, okay, well, now that you're here and I can kill you, I'm going to release the whole, you know, unconscious magic thing that I did on him. So the Ancient One's awake, but he's very weak. And he and he and Doctor Strange have like this, you know, corner boxing moment where they talk about how he could still beat him um, and then they get into a fight. Oh, and then Dormammu pulls that nameless lady that still has no name to watch Doctor Strange lose because before he kills her, he wants her to suffer and know that the person you betrayed me to help is going to die. And then they fight. And I'm not going to get into details of the fight. It's a lot of fighty fight fight. It's a lot of beams being shot. But basically the essence of the fight is that Mordo has a lot of power because of Dormammu. And because of that, he's kind of being sloppy with it and just pouring it on. 
And Doctor Strange manages to stay alive by being smarter and quicker, um, much to the frustration of Dormammu, who thinks that Mordo should have killed him by now. And even at one point, like Doctor Strange makes multiple versions of himself, and Mordo is super tricked by that. And Dormammu's like, no, stupid. Just focus on the one dude that's not ghost-colored. And finally, uh, after all that, oh, and like Dormammu is powering Mordo, but the Ancient One is trying his best to also power Doctor Strange. But towards the end, he is just so weak that he can't do that anymore. Um, But... By the time we get to the end of the fight, Dormammu is so fed up with how cruddy Mordo is at fighting. Like he's giving him all the nuclear power in the world and he still can't beat Doctor Strange because he's just so bad at fighting. That Dormammu's like, forget this. I'm going to do it myself. And he raises up both hands. And between Doctor Strange and Mordo, his face starts glowing and getting bigger. And there's like this huge explosion kind of thing. And to be continued. All right. So I'm not sure exactly what happened, but we'll find out next issue. I feel like this is like the penultimate chapter. I feel like we have very little to go. I know, but I've already asked you, and you told me there's like 28 more episodes. So Yeah, at least 72 more chapters. I forget exactly how <sighs> It really should end next issue, honestly. Mm-hmm. I mean, how can it not? It doesn't even make sense, but whatever. I found it interesting that Dormammu was the one keeping the Ancient One comatose all this time. Uh-huh. Like, it wasn't just he got hurt and it was out. He was being kept out. Yeah, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Kind of makes sense. Um, I kind of was like, like Doctor Strange is like, oh, remember how you told me to find Eternity? I finally found Eternity, but he told me nothing. And and Ancient One's like, okay. <laughs> like, yeah. no surprise. Like, that's fine. Okay, fine. Whatever. Let's keep going. I guess that's the only choice, really. But um, I had very little to say on this. Mordo gets very confused about why he's not able to win this fight. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a rope-a-dope. It's a rope-a-dope. Basically. Yeah. I liked page nine, panel two. Um, the bolt gets thrown at Strange, and he has a series of shields, and it's like penetrating through all the shields. Uh-huh. That's a pretty good little effect there. Yeah, I summarize this fight quickly, because it really is just like beam after beam after beam. But mm. like, I did like the overall idea that what's happening is that Mordo is just like unleashing all this energy, but... He's not doing it in an intelligent way. And Doctor Strange continues to just basically evade the entire fight. This is, we haven't had like really big major magical slugfests in this story. Mm-hmm. And I think this illustrates why that's not a very good go-to for Doctor Strange. Because mm-hmm. it's just, you know, arcs of color. Yeah. It, it's like other, if you didn't have the word balloons, you'd have no idea what, what, why any either one of them was winning or losing. Mm-hmm. It's just like, Dragon Ball Z, two fireballs hitting each other for an hour. Right. Or a Harry and Voldemort pointing harder and harder at each other. <laughs> right. Yeah. When you get to the end, it's like, now look who's come to bargain. Yeah, but is he violating his the terms of his, of his uh, condition? If oh. so, that's really annoying because this whole time was him not trying to do that. This so whole story just, was predicated on that right there. But I'm not sure if he is because it, I don't know if he actually went through that TV. Or if he's just shooting beams out from the TV. It does leave us wondering what's going to happen. Yeah. Which is what they're supposed to do. But I like that, like kind of like Tony Stark beating a much stronger titanium man that Doctor Strange outmagics Mordo with his intelligence. That's cool. But unless you have anything else. That's it. All right. Rappity, rappity rap. I don't know if we've... I forgot to say with Sergeant Fury, but those last two comics were from September 9th. 
Okay. The first two from September 2nd. Um, and looking, we're going to finish off September next episode. Mm-hmm. We have Tales of Suspense 72. Mike, it's Captain America's first present day story. Yay, the sleeper. The sleeper shall wake. Such a Captain America thing. And Iron Man, uh, hurrah for the conquering hero. Then we have the Avengers 22, the road back. Having been defeated, they had to find their way back to being Avengers. The Fantastic 445, <gasps> Among Us, Hide the Inhumans. Ooh, so creepy. And Amazing Spider-Man 31. Yes, folks, it's that one. If this be my destiny, the beginning of the Master Planner saga. Hey, Stan, what kind of villain do you want the X-Men to fight this month? How about a giant robot? Okay. Hey, also, Stan, I wanted to ask you, what do you want uh, Cap to start fighting this month? How about a giant robot? Iron Man fought a giant robot last month, and that broke pretty well, so let's keep doing that. (laughs) That said, the Sentinel and the Sleeper are kind of iconic Marvel things. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Probably the Sentinel more so, but the Sleeper never goes away either. Well, um, where can they find us? They can find us at MakeOursMarvel.com. If you just type Make Ours Marvel into any podcast uh, app, you'll also find us. But if you want to go to our website, we have one. It's all pretty and stuff. And it's got links to Facebook and Twitter. So you can join in the discussion and the retweeting and the liking and stuff because we love that. You can write us podcast at makeoursmarvel.com or use the form on the website. And we will read your comments or your feedback or your questions or your answers at some point in the future on one of our mailbag episodes. And if you'd like, please leave us a star rating or a review on iTunes so that we are a shinier, more uh, cool podcast on their listing. Shiny and cool. (laughs) All aboard. We're podcasting you, the marvels. Okay. Um, (laughs) So I could be found on Twitter. At John Reads Comics. My buddy Michael here can be found on Twitter at Kaiser the Great. Um, my other shows are Return to Cybertron, a Transformers UK podcast at TFUK podcast on Twitter, and All the Pouches and Image Comics podcast at All the Pouches on Twitter. And um, I have a tweet blog about the Scarlet Witch called uh, Let's Talk Wanda. It's actually called The Scarlet Witching Hour, but it's at Let's Talk Wanda on the uh, Twitters. So go check those out. And do we have anything else? Is that it? That's it. Well, until next time, or until the Supreme Hydra's daughter becomes an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., make ours marvel. marvel.